0: Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit.
1: Hello, and welcome to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Today, I'm happy to be joined again by the OG CISO Gambit creator, Brad Moldenhauer and Benjamin Coral, who have just come back from Miami, where they were attending the first inaugural CISOs Executive Summit, AKA the CISO Exchange, first event of its kind. And we, in discussion earlier, were talking about some of the key takeaways that they had, and they're here today to provide some perspectives. Brad and Benjamin, welcome.
0: Thanks, Sean. Looking forward to the
1: dialogue. As am I. So the theme of this event was building a secure and resilient enterprise. That is a pretty loaded theme. Taking that apart could mean a variety of different disciplines that extend far beyond information security, data security, et cetera. But it is definitely couched in the idea of resiliency of the business. I wasn't able to attend this year, but I would love to hear from both of you. What were some of the key things that really led additional insights into this theme? And what were some of the takeaways that you had had associated with the idea of business and security resilience?
2: So one of the things that really jumped out at me, and as you said, this was a, a CISO exchange. So we brought together a, a number of CISOs or Chief Information Security Officers. And the thing that jumped out to me during the conversations, during the topics, during the hallway conversations, is the amount of innovation that these teams, uh, all of the companies that are being represented, the innovation that they're bringing in, and the business discussions that were being had. It wasn't, I'm bringing in this new tool, I'm bringing in this new technology. It was, how can we be better business enablers? How do I understand what our business is, how to protect it, but how to really enable it? Uh, so I was really, really surprised, pleasantly so, at the business acumen that was being shared as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, and i I would kind of echo that as well because it's interesting a lot of the times where um you know we have some kind of uh, user. Centric event, you know, we always talk about the outcomes that are delivered by our products and our platform. And while that that still was obviously a topic of discussion throughout the uh, the the few days of the CISO Exchange, it was really great to see us focus on what I would call cyber resiliency, and not just from you know how we help customers enable their own businesses but what we're doing internally to build that resilience uh, platform. So, Think like a lot of our SDLC and DevSecOps processes, um, you know, what we're doing from a global cloud architecture standpoint, you know, to make sure that we can minimize these, uh, blackouts, brownouts and other black swan events. So I, I it was, it was a really interesting approach that I don't think that we talk about, uh, enough because there's a lot that goes into that from uh, a cloud operations standpoint. And we really got to, um, Open up the hood and and hear a little bit more about what those teams do internally to kind of make all of this possible, Ben, you had mentioned
1: innovation in the context of different ways that organizations that you spoke to during the event how they were looking at it. I'm curious, did you find that it was innovation towards different implementations of security controls? You said it wasn't just I'm bringing in another tool it was more along the lines of i'm thinking about this problem this was my take i'm thinking about this problem in a different way is there an example of something that you saw or heard during the event that made you go yeah that's pretty damn cool i got to check that no, out
2: now fantastic question and you know it's several conversations w- were had and i'll call these my my hallway conversations And it was, how do we stop people from connecting to our networks? And this has been, you know, connecting to a routable network, you know, the traditional VPN, and as soon as you connect, you know, that's been around for 20 plus years. Uh, As long as I've been around in IT, it's been around as well. And it really came down to different conversations of how do we stop people connecting to our networks? Because this just causes problems. Uh, If you talk about how do we combat. Uh, combat ransomware or something like that. Well, stop connecting to the network. Stop allowing unknown, untrusted devices from connecting to your network. And then you have, okay, well, what, what would that look like? And you know, I could sit here, put on my Zscaler hat and say, I love private access. I love, you know, deploying that. But then you had somebody said, well, we went to a, a VDI, you know, virtual desktop instance. And no longer were vendors allowed to connect their machines to our network. They're only going to be able to log on to a VDI. They still get access to my environment, but no longer is it an unknown or untrusted device. Now, again, they're logged on to a generally going to be logged onto a system. So they can still pivot. They can still log on to others. They can still discover anything else on the network. But it was one more aspect uh, of doing this. Uh, so that was one of the the things that was out there. It was how do we see a problem and how do we address it? How do we not always do what we've always done and assuming it's the only way. So there were other conversations, uh you know, other topics that that came up as well where it's not just always going to be This is how it's always been solved, and we're going to have a very closed mindset here. It was, okay, what else could we do? How else could we solve that? Uh, Really refreshing conversations.
1: Brad, from your point of view, when we're talking about this idea of don't connect to the network, my observation over the last decade or so, that the idea of connecting to the network implies that you're connecting to something that is by definition, either transporting or hosting something of value. From the discussions that you've had during this event, are you hearing any changes or uh, different ways of thinking about what kind of data or systems that are still being hosted on a more traditional legacy style approach or? are you finding that with increased acceleration of cloud for some of these organizations where it's very difficult to, to make change? Is that what's driving some of this or is it something completely different?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's a mixed bag really. Um, you know, some organizations are just, you know, going to be of the mindset that, Hey, look, um, you know, the term that we hear a lot is, Hey, this asset is processing and hosting our crown jewels, right? The data that, you know, according to a risk assessment they've done internally would drive the most negative impact if compromised. And some of them have just said, hey, look, we feel more comfortable in having this hosted, you know, on premise or, you know, in some kind of co-location data center that we manage. You know, we're not ready to, you know, outsource this to some kind of SaaS provider or we're just not there yet in refactoring this application to a IaaS or PaaS instance. But, you know, to Ben's point, one of the things that I think I'm hearing a little bit more now that I probably didn't hear as much this time last year is that, A lot of CISOs are really starting to understand um, the ideas uh, that zero trust conveys without actually saying it, which is this notion of reachability and how it can impact risk. Right. Um, And I would say reachability and risk have just dramatically shifted in recent years as we move away from this hard perimeter fortress approach to more distributed systems. APIs, cloud computing, uh SaaS and when we do that, you know, there there was this view that well now we have far more potential points for attack ingress and exfiltration egress and really those that have kind of adopted hey this is the way things are going to be, you know, they've mitigated this new risk landscape and you know, are moving away moving away from fortifying uh, you know, the the business network to really kind of, uh, you know, building this new perimeter around identity, authentication, and zero trust. And I'm just starting to see a lot more buy-in and and comprehension from what could, uh, you know, be possible with a lot of the things that we've been pushing in the market for, for quite some time. And I think that that's really exciting from an adoption standpoint.
1: So one of the things that constantly gets thrown out there is the quote-unquote confusion over the definition of zero trust. And to me that's kind of a head scratcher because if you go to the original paper, it's pretty clear. <laughs> People bought firewalls, they deployed them, they misconfigured them. You should do better. It's like, okay, so you're effectively restating fundamental prin- fundamental principles of least privilege in a different context right in the discussions that you are having or some of the talks that you heard is the leading definition that has been put forth by organizations like the cloud security alliance with their zero trust advancement center where it's not just oh it's simply network access or, oh, it's simply endpoint or, oh, it's simply access control. It's a combination of all of these things. Is that what you're saying is a little more prevalent now in terms of folks understanding or is it still being looked at from a very layer three, layer four uh, perspective from a implementation standpoint?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that that's exactly what it is, is that the you know, the the zero trust initiatives out there, they're really starting to understand that, okay, hey, this is predicated on a cyber mesh where I'm going to have very specific players that really kind of feed into this overall strategy. Now, where we fit in is obviously the policy enforcement side, but you know, really kind of identifying what that partner ecosystem looks like—from identity providers to endpoint protection platforms, potentially even you know some of the virtualization you're doing along your edge with SD WAN—and then, of course, you know, uh, SecOps is a real big player in this. And when they start to kind of see that picture, paint. It, you know it, it gets away from this whole mindset of oh yeah it's it's not one vendor uh, you know i don't think anyone including us ever said that it was right and i think that that was um, some confusion that a, a lot of uh, customers out there had but i think now they're really starting to get a sense for how this is going to work in their environments because they've started down this path you know with private application access and really kind of minimizing what i would call again the reachability to um, some of those assets. So it, it goes, it builds on top of this least privileged granular access, but then also kind of seeing some of the, the ancillary benefits of, of the way that we view zero trust or, you know, how CSA is defined that through essentially a, a software defined parameter. Uh,
2: now, and I really like that. And I think it was Brad who told me, uh, you know, months and months ago, you know, when you think about what is zero trust, And zero trust, and I think this is being understood more and more of not just being a buzzword, but how do you define it? And when you start defining zero trust and say it's a contextualized access control, which, or, you know, identity, contextualized access, which provides least privileged access, which is then going to be continuously evaluated. So it's not just a single point in time. It's going to be continually evaluated as well. Because there's a better understanding of that out there, because there are those integrations of those multiple solutions, uh, or as Brad said, they build upon each other. I think that is why you're starting to see movement going forward, because solutions are getting better. People are understanding this. It's not, again, just a buzzword anymore. There's actually meat. There's actually things people can do. And because of that, you're starting to see adoption, and you're starting to see that implementation of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one thing I would add on to that in a number of discussions that at least when I was having them with um, you know, various CISOs that were in attendance at the CISO exchange is that I, you know, I want to say that we've been pushing this, but it's becoming more apparent now. But a lot of them have really kind of rethought on how they're implementing zero trust. And I did not talk to any one of them who did not fundamentally believe that zero trust is not a worthwhile aim, but at the same time, they all recognized that it is far too complex and multidimensional of a problem to handle through a portfolio of manual controls, right? So they really were focused in on these integrations that Ben and I were just talking about to help automate, to tackle that problem at scale in a modern enterprise.
1: It's funny that you say that, Brad, because an entire vertical right now is probably going, but wait, you need us. (laughs) You need us to integrate your disparate stuff. Come on now. I mean, I know of one company, fairly large company, that seems to have done that, adding some capabilities to their portfolio. And uh, I'm not even sure they still sell that capability, but I suspect that they're using it on their (laughs) back end. Now, the last time you gentlemen were on the show, one of the things that we were discussing was this idea of the role of the CISO and how it continues to shift. And the context for that conversation last time was around liability and the, the negative impacts that we're seeing some CISOs uh, really have to take the brunt of. Last month, uh, we had Don Marie Hutchinson on the show, and she made a comment that... In the world of CISOs, we've been asking for so many years to be at the table and we're finally there in some capacity, but we still don't have the exact same respect that other executives might. Now, I know that this varies from organization to organization, but then when you think about that and overlay some of the industry-level changes that are happening, whether it's on the personal liability individuals now getting charged with alleged criminal activities, et cetera, et cetera, or lack of care or lack of uh, due diligence. Was this a conversation that came up at all across your peer group? I can't imagine that it didn't show up in some way, shape, or form.
2: No matter what your role is inside your organization, whether you be CISO, CFO, CEO, see anything, if you lie to regulators, if you mislead them, you are, you know, if you're doing criminal activity, you should not be surprised when prosecutions come after you. So I don't think that's set in a, a standard, uh, but it's saying thou shalt not do this. You know, so it, it's an example for the rest of us not to follow. Um, so I don't think that, you know, asking for a seat at the table. And as you said, you know, to some aspect, we're there absolutely is going to vary. Uh, you know, do we each and every one of, uh, CISOs that are going out there. If you're not listed as a director of the company. If you're not listed as an officer of the company, do you cover your own D&O insurance? Well, okay, great. Uh you know, that was a topic of conversation uh, over lunch or dinner or something at one of the tables uh that I was at as well. But the thing is is that DNO insurance is not going to cover you if you are <laughs> breaking the law, if you are doing criminal activity. So, yeah, it might not be a bad thing for CISOs that are not listed as a as a director officer to have their own insurance, but Understanding, it's still not going to help when you are knowingly, willingly <laughs> breaking the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: I um, you know, on this point, I, I had uh, it was a smaller conversation. It was with two different individuals, but you know, they they came at me with an interesting question, and I think it feeds into what you just asked, Sean. Was is, is the growing responsibility associated with the role? But the question that they ultimately were asking me in in a different way, but they were trying to evaluate to see if security can give their organization a non-traditional competitiveness because they understand that security is valuable and they've been obviously having these conversations with their board or at least executive leadership team and really when it, when they when they kind of laid this out to me I was like well yeah I mean it's valuable with not only vendors and partners but also customers and and you know we've seen in the industry how some companies can turn that into generating revenue or or grabbing greater market share or increasing margin and average selling prices or just be part of a a good, better, best type marketing strategy. So, yeah, there's lots of opportunities. And that, in a way, could be the golden ticket if cybersecurity can morph itself and being able to deliver those types of enterprise benefits. And the conversation really kind of stretched into, you know, to what Ben really kind of started this discussion with is what kind of innovations are out there. And then I think that this conversation picked it up to where, yeah, how did these help me differentiate myself within my specific industry, vertical or marketplace? So just fascinating dialogues on things I didn't even expect to talk about.
1: Brad, one of the topics that I know you enjoy quite a bit, and and you were on the show uh, last year Uh, talking about uh, ML and AI with uh, our head of research on that front and product development. (laughs) How was that topic in the context of the way that we work now, uh, security operators, pros, compliance folks, whichever flavor of security that you're in, what was any any takeaways or things that you heard that made you go, huh, that's interesting. I I hadn't considered that, or I have been considering that, but I thought it was kind of out there, but it's not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, uh, you know, first of all, when I think of AI and ML in a security context, I think that it gives us you know, uh, a degree of automation in whatever it is that it's being applied to. Right. So I think in this context, what we can think of and what we what Ben and I probably saw a little bit of with some of the AI and ML advancements is creating yield out of security expense. Right. So, again, focusing more on automation and then obviously prevention. Uh, I mean, we're doing some very interesting things with um, what I would call smart isolation, which is kind of more of a predictive control to, you know, help organizations get ahead of that risk curve. Um, So, yeah, I I, I would say that that uh, unlike previous discussions we've had about AI and ML, it was more about really creating yield out of security expense with what it does, which is really automating a lot of historical manual processes or, you know, semi-automated ones at best.
1: Ben, did uh, you have any similar discussions around the impact of AI ML? I know I was uh, speaking with a friend about this and we were asking one of these uh, generative engines to create uh, security standards for us to see how close to reality they would end up. And some of them weren't too bad. Uh, certainly, certainly would probably, well, I definitely would pass an audit. But uh, my point is, is that uh, they, <laughs> uh, I was a little surprised with uh, some of the outcomes that came from it. Uh, much better than I than I had anticipated. Any similar yeah, absolutely. discussions? That's
2: the scary part is, of course, you know, some of these uh, things came up as well. And I think everybody is surprised at... Just how realistic it the results can come out. Some people have used it to say uh, you know, they're seeing similar resumes and cover letters coming through, and they can tell based on like some of the wording that that's coming through consistently, that they believe that these resumes are being generated for people by some of these uh these AI uh engines that are out there. Uh, but I at some point, perhaps articles that all of us read blogs and articles, that could uh, really become more and more the norm that's out there. know, uh, yeah, I like to think as Brad started off talking about repeatable tasks. You know, if I have to do something a few times, I want to script it. I don't want to continue to do this manually. And that's where I love some of these, uh, you know, that machine learning and, and the AI that's out there. But just thinking about how do we create content valuable content uh but then we you got to think about the the biases uh that are there as well that you know create me this inside this scope inside this taking this into account uh you know the the guardrails that you put out there as well will change the results, uh, what's provided for you as well. So I really like when you're talking about standards saying that they weren't too bad because uh, you, cause you th- sit there and say, create me a you know acceptable use policy for what type of organization that allows this, that takes into account working from home. It's going to be different than, say, a financial organization uh, or a government organization. So yes, yes, it could... The applicability is going to be very interesting to see in the days ahead. And I'll say uh, some of the other conversations uh, that that were had was, how do I stop this? How do I block this? How do I not let my users use this? Because this is unknown, untested, and we're wary of the technology. We don't want it inside our organization right now. If somebody wants to use it, they can use it at home.
1: Oh great. This is uh smells like cloud all over again. <laughs> it, it's like seriously, it's like technology prohibition. When has that ever worked? Oh wait, did prohibition work? No, no, and hasn't worked. <laughs> um but I, I think that's the part that just makes me go, hmm, if we're looking at adopting uh best and by we I mean we as not like Zscaler, but we as in like professionals, right? Mm -hmm. New ways of doing what we do better, faster, and also getting wise to ways that some adversaries might be leveraging these tools. It Mm -hmm. seems counterintuitive to me that somebody would go and do this. I was messing around with it the other day with one of these other generative ones and even though my my spoken Spanish is pretty decent, my 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 professional level written Spanish ain't the best. I mean, you know, it 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 would pass like a fifth, sixth grade level. So just like a year under my English <laughs> writing. But it would it would pass maybe at that level. But you know, once you get in a professional context, it's very different. So I threw it at one of these generative engines and I was like, hey, create for me this email. I want it in Spanish. Here's the tone that I want and shoot it out. And I literally was like, wow, I that that is certainly much better than anything I could write. Like right. it was so good I couldn't even take it to my mom and ask her to re- to like review it cuz most of the words that were being used not really within her vocabulary, right? right. Cuz they were all tech stuff, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> regarding the keynote though i mean kind of like final thoughts from both of you gentlemen i appreciate it um so i understand that it was uh jay chaudhry founder ceo of zscaler along with george kurtz uh founder ceo of crowdstrike and uh it's it, it's great to see those uh two industry leaders uh together because of the fact that uh, between ecosystem partnerships and uh, integrations uh, it's important and part and parcel to what both organizations are looking to solve for for mutual clients. Were there additional takeaways that either of you had from that discussion between the two of them or takeaways that came as a outcome from peer level discussions afterwards?
0: Uh well, you know, one thing I would say is uh, you know, Ben, I'm I'm sure you would kinda uh, agree with me here. I mean, just to see, you know, George Kurtz and Jay Chowdhury on stage together talking about this, I mean, what a what a legendary session for the cybersecurity community, right? Um, so I mean, that was just uh, you know, I was kinda starstruck, if you will, almost seeing that those two, you know, innovative minds up there kind of have just a frank and open dialogue um with this audience uh but yeah i mean both of them kind of echoed the same thing which was really based around the importance of having um a substantial ecosystem of partners to kind of put together that holistic security strategy fully admitting that you know they're not a uh you know a one stop uh you know shop in delivering all of these outcomes but again a key cog in that you know Protective chain, if you will, and um, I, I it was really kind of interesting hearing both of them talk to that. And then, of course, um, you know, something that we can obviously say here is that you know both um, Zscaler and CrowdStrike are customers of each other, right? Um, so that was kind of a fascinating dialogue to hear both of them talk about you know their experiences with um one another's products within their operational environment. And we had a lot of customers um, mutually that that really resonated with and they had their own experiences with and that led to a lot of discussions um you know that i had uh with customers about hey here's what we're doing today with the integration between zscaler and crowdstrike what more could we be doing? And uh, yeah, it it really kind of opened up, uh, you know, a whole side of conversations about device posturing and um, detection and response for uh, zero day threats. And and a couple of other things, too, that I I just I really enjoyed. And it was kind of fostered by that dialogue those two had on stage.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, just thinking about You know, the the integrations, uh, you know, ecosystem partners and integrations matter and industry best standards and industry leading products. They're fantastic. They really are. But if they don't integrate well into your organization, then they're probably not the best solution for you. And if you have a secondary product that does 90 percent of the industry leading product, but it integrates amazingly into your organization that might actually be the better fit for your company, depending on what that 10% uh, gap is. Uh, But I had one CISO come up to me as we were chatting, and he wanted to understand with the, the integrations, how am I, the customer of both companies, better because of the integration? What have others done? And am I better having both products which integrate well? And if so, how? Uh, and is deploying one going to be easier because I have the other? And the, these are the sorts of things that are being thought about of the these ecosystem, the very well integrated products that are out there of if I'm together, you know, if one plus one equals two, if I have these two together, does it actually one plus one equals three? Am I better? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, the types of questions that are being asked. If you're better together, show me. Tell me how are you saving me time? Are you making my life easier?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one final thought on that, that I really kind of, that jumped out at me that really both Jay and George were conveying is when they talked about, you know, you know, the reasons for both companies, mutual success, it really kind of centered around, you know, the security players who deliver real business outcomes. So you know that measurable sustained reduction in cyber risk, really the ability to flatten or lower the total cost of control to the business, and then improved business velocity, those are going to be the strongest of the security survivors. And the reason is simple. Why? Because they will have delivered to their customers real economic value when they needed it the most. And that was kind of the big takeaway I had from both of them. And uh, look, uh, you know, all of us are kind of in the same boat. Uh, you know, I was a Zscaler customer before I came here. Well, I also was a CrowdStrike customer. And it was kind of cool to hear them say that and say, wow, I got a lot right back in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, nice. <laughs> I, uh,
1: I appreciate you both coming back on the show and providing your key takeaways and learnings from the CISO exchange that just happened over in Miami brad always a pleasure benjamin thanks again for coming
0: thank you for having us really
2: appreciate it
1: you've been listening to the cso's gambit i'm your host sean thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed this show please leave a comment and subscribe
0: content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright
1: 2022.